0: All right, um, so today we are digging into some more uh, heavy territory in this series called This Is War. I'm really glad um, you came back uh, because uh, this has been some weird, scary, outside of our comfort zone kind of stuff. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. I readily admit that some of you are going to hear some of this stuff and just be like, nah, I don't I mean, I'll keep coming to the story maybe, but I'm ready for this weird series to be over. Let's talk about something, you know, talk about marriage again or like something like I can wrap my head around because maybe you're just not ready to to embrace this uh, idea of spiritual forces of good and evil at war all around us and even within us all the time. Now, the problem, if that's where you're at, as understandable as it is, I understand we live in kind of a rational culture and that's, We want to be in control of our thoughts and believe in real, you know, realistic, rational things. Um, The problem becomes it's either you or Jesus that's right at some point. And you got to decide if you're smarter than Jesus about this stuff. And that's the decision I had to make back when I was... preacher but not yet a Christian in that season of my life and I was preaching but I didn't really believe what I was preaching. At some point in time I had to decide whether it's more likely that I'm right about my own ideas about spiritual stuff. I wasn't a supernaturalist. I believed in the material world only. Or whether Jesus is right. You know, the most influential reputable man who ever existed (laughs) like which one of us is more likely to be correct Uh, (laughs) and then if you add on like the apostle Paul and Simon Peter and Athanasius and Saint Augustine and you know John Wesley and John Calvin and Martin Luther and Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and and C.S. Lewis and all these other great great theological minds um, is it me or is it them like, who's more likely to be right and wrong? And you, you might have to ask yourself the same question, and I'm making a little joke about it, but, but I think it's good to ask ourselves some challenging questions about what we really believe and why. So um, that's what we're gonna be doing today. Before I get too deep into this, I, wanna, I do wanna thank and acknowledge people that are watching online. Um, thank you for joining us from wherever you are across the country and world. It's really cool that y'all are joining us in this way. Be sure to leave your comments and things like that if you have questions. All right, so um, deep down, here's the deal. Even though we live in a rational culture, even though every time there's a census, the fastest growing segment of religious identity in America is, guess what, non-religious. Even though it seems like we're becoming more and more secular and farther and farther from God, um, we continue in our culture to hold on to the meta-narratives of theology and the Bible. And I think, as one uh, professor said once, I remember hearing in his class, he said, if you wanna know what a group of people believes, then listen to their stories. Uh, Observe their art. Look at what they're creating. And so if you look at our movies, and our books, and our comic books, and our art, you see what the Bible says is real. This cosmic, supernatural struggle You see stories being told about light versus darkness and heroes versus villains. And the Christian worldview would say, well, you know, all those stories are derivative of the one true story. Like there is a master narrative and then there's other stories that are derivative of that master narrative. And, and, you know, fictional tales spin off of the nonfiction one. And, um, you know, and so I think it's hard to deny, especially when you look at like, um, some of our favorite stories, some of the villains in our favorite stories, like uh, Voldemort and Vader and, uh, you know, and you've got Scar and, and Sauron, like all these guys, these villains in our favorite stories from the DC universe to Marvel to Disney to whatever, like Star Wars, etc. Like it all seems to tell the same story. We... St- we, we keep telling these stories as if we believe them, as if they're true, because I think deep down we do. It's in our DNA. We can't explain the world that we experience without spiritual reality. And so that's what we've been um, talking about for the last couple of weeks. Uh, for Jesus, it's very clear that spiritual reality is not only real, but it's, it's more um, important than merely the physical world. And this is very difficult for us, because most of us are strict materialists in terms of our worldview, our philosophy. I don't mean you're materialistic in terms of your shopping habits. I mean, as a philosophy, you're a materialist. All of us are. It's deep in our culture, like this idea that, that all that really matters, and maybe all it really is, is what, what we have, what we see, what we taste, what we buy, what we're wearing, how we look, how people see us, who we're with, where we live, that kind of thing. And we live, we do. Like, let's just be honest here and say that's how we live. We live as if we're strict materialists, as if all that really matters day to day is m- the material world. For Jesus, that's not how the world works. You can take it or leave it, but this is where Jesus lands on this issue. For Jesus, the spiritual world is preeminent, the spiritual world matters. Um, incredibly more than, than for most of us. And this is the same, you know, he, he prioritizes his attention to the devil, to this Satan figure. He talks not just about him, he talks to him. And so he takes that person, that creature, very seriously, where we've made kind of a mockery of Satan in our culture. He says that we should, in John chapter, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, we shouldn't be afraid of the ones who might harm or kill the body. We should be afraid of the one who has the potential or can kill us body and soul for eternity. And, uh, and that's not usually how we look at life. Last week, I told a couple stories, kind of creepy stories about the ways I've seen spiritual attacks happening. And I risked a little bit of, you know, credibility with some skeptics in the room, I think, because these were Pretty outrageous stories if you've not experienced anything like this before, but it's, it's the stuff I've seen. One story kind of stood out. It was one where I was praying with a guy in the parking lot and he told me to watch my back. Some of y'all that were here last week, you remember? He said, they're coming for you and they're coming for the story. And uh, that creeped a lot of people out. I got some emails this week that, uh, and, but by and large, and this is not a criticism, these were valid questions and valid concerns. By and large, the concerns were, what's our security plan? What's our evacuation plan? <laughs> Like, where do we go if something happens? Like, and that's about, we we invest heavily time and energy and money into those plans. I'm very confident in our campus security and things. So we're not ignoring that stuff. But if that's your only takeaway from the story I told, I'm afraid we're not quite getting it yet. Because while that's important, uh, Jesus says the stuff you see on the news, the terrible sort of acts of violence and things like that, worst case scenarios in many people's minds, those things pale in comparison to our true and insidious enemy. Not least of which because we don't know how to fight him. We know how to hire security guards. But how do you fight this enemy? And so for the last two weeks, we've been talking about this enemy and I haven't really equipped you yet with any offensive strategies. And being the good Texans that you are, you don't just wanna be defensive, you wanna go on the offense, like you wanna strike. And that's good, you should want that. And the Bible encourages that. But you have to know how, you have to have a strategy, a plan. And I think most people expect pastors at this point to talk about the full armor of God, and I love the full armor of God, y'all. It's one of my favorite passages, Ephesians chapter six. There's two problems with that. The first problem is I just preached a sermon on the full armor of God less than a, two years ago. Like two Christmases ago, I preached a full sermon series on the full armor of God. Y'all can look that up. The second problem is if that's the only passage we ever talk about in spiritual battles and warfare and stuff, like, then we're gonna miss a lot of what the Bible has to say about how to go on the offensive. And so I want to take one little part of the full armor of God and kind of extrapolate it out. And I think it's probably the most important part of the full armor of God, that, that analogy that Paul strikes in Ephesians. And I, I want to kind of talk about it in three ways. As you think about three ways, you can go on the offensive against this enemy who wants to claim you body and soul. And what I'm talking about is truth. 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 After the 940 service, there was a guy that came up to me and he said that he shared a similar journey with me. He said, I've shared a lot of the same doubts that you've had. I've felt a lot of the same ways about religion that you have. And I'm just curious, he said, what was it that raised doubts in your mind when you were a skeptic about your agnostic or atheist worldview? Like, What was it that maybe were the cracks in your foundation in that worldview that opened you up to Christianity in the end? It's a great question. I'd never been asked that question before, but he's spot on. And the thing that was on my mind then was the problem of truth. And when you're a strict sort of naturalist, as I was kind of a skeptic, hard-hearted skeptic and agnostic person, I really, um, I didn't want to think of truth as an objective reality. I accepted the soundbite that my truth is my truth and your truth is yours and you speak your truth and that's your truth and I honor that. You know, and I'll speak my truth and you honor my truth. And that all works until, you know, somebody's truth is, is 15 wives, you know, like barefoot in the kitchen or something. Like, like that all works until there's oppression. And then we have to start judging each other's truths. You know, it, it falls apart pretty quick. It would seem as though if we can say that some things are objectively better than others, and we can, that there is some objective standard, some objective capital T truth. And this is something the enemy cannot abide. He cannot abide truth in any form. Jesus said in John's gospel that the enemy is a murderer from the start and he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen when I tell you that the enemy you're up against can handle your church attendance. He can handle your good behavior He can handle you becoming a productive member of society. He will get you dressed and out the door on a Sunday morning. He will be the one to put the gold star on your attendance chart in Sunday school. Like He's cool with all of that, but he cannot abide the truth of God. He cannot abide you becoming a truthful person. So we're gonna talk about this in three different ways. Um, We're gonna talk about receiving truth, seeing truth, and telling the truth, all right? So uh, we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, this whole series, we've kinda of been rolling through Matthew and Jesus's different experiences with um, demons and Satan in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm not gonna tell the whole story, but you just need to know that in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a really famous parable. It's the one called the parable of the sower, which isn't Like this, it's sower is a farmer, like sowing seeds, right? So he's scattering the seeds and the seeds fall on four different kinds of soil. And the four different kinds of soil are a hard path, um, rocky soil that has a a thin layer of dirt and there's no way for the roots to go deep. And then there's thorns and weeds in the soil and then there's good soil. And so the seeds fall in different kinds of soil. And before we get into the story, I just need you to know, this is a little Cliff Notes edition um, and a little hint at how to read Jesus' stories. Every time he tells a story, the central character in the story is who? Not you. Okay, okay, it's very important. It's really important. You are not the central character. And neither am I. God is. God is the central character. And the seed, uh, the farmer is God. And the seed that he casts around is the gospel or the message of Jesus and the soil, uh, the different kinds of soil are the different states of the human heart. All right? So I'm not going to tell the whole story. I just want to deal with that first kind of soil for the sake of today's sermon, the hard path. So this is Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. All right, here we go. <clears throat> So then Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. So Jesus tells this part, and he tells the whole story. And what happens, as often happens when you're preaching to people who are distracted or not interested in what you're saying, is he looked up and he saw a bunch of glazed over eyes and confused looks. This didn't happen very often with Jesus. In fact, there was only one or two times that he had to re-preach his sermon. But uh, I know the feeling. I've seen the look that Jesus got. The people just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And so he retells it. And so he explains the whole story to them in uh, chapter 13 a little bit later. Uh, So in verses 18 and 19, check this out. He says, listen then to what the parable means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. This is the seed that fell on the hard path. All right? So, uh, if you're like me and you hate birds, You have no problem with birds being Satan in this analogy. I don't know if you caught that or not, but my dad showed me that Hitchcock movie when I was seven years old, and I've hated birds ever since. And uh, my mom told me that scissor tail birds would cut all your hair off. So thanks, mom and dad. The bird here represents the evil one or the Satan. Remember Satan's not his name, it's just a title, the enemy, right? And so what is this telling us about the hard path? It's saying that we have an enemy who relishes the opportunity to steal something away from you when it is not absorbed or understood. And he does it all the time. Y'all, you have friends that have walked away from God because of a misunderstanding. Do you not? All the time. It's classic Satan, like he does it all the time, right? And sometimes it's because the message is mishandled or misdelivered, misrepresented, right? Overcomplicated. This message, this gospel of Jesus, very simple. Intentionally simple. Simple enough for little kids to grasp it in its entirety. It should not be convoluted or complicated or overwhelming to understand, y'all. But oftentimes churches and preachers make it so. We do it in several ways, whether it's because uh, our politics are more important than our theology sometimes, and we use Jesus as a vehicle to get people to vote a certain way or think a certain way about social issues, and, and then we just lose credibility and people stop believing, right? It's misrepresenting the gospel. Or sometimes preachers (laughs) just wanna sound smart. You ever been in those sermons? Or any talk, like any talk, maybe a a professor or something, like somebody who, it's more important for them that you think they're smart than it is for them to deliver the truth. This was me, I'm, I'm convicting myself. This was me when I was preaching before I was a Christian. I didn't believe the stuff I was saying, most of it, and so, instead of preaching with conviction, I preached with confusion. I wanted, the best thing that people could say to me after a sermon was, man, that was really over my head. <laughs> it's not good, but man, if I could confuse people and make them think I'm so smart they can't get what I'm bringing, you know, like, it's so shallow. It's so shallow and, and wrong. But I, I didn't believe this stuff really Back then. And and I enjoyed kind of being there. You know, there is um, a certain species of intellectual that really relishes that. That throws, you know, facts and figures and sources and conflicting information, and they give you more reasons to doubt than to believe. That's what happens. Some people walk away from some sermons with more doubts than when the sermon began because we are trying to be smart instead of just deliver the simple truth of God so sometimes it's on the preachers and the churches and all that but let me say this more often than not it's on us individually if you look at the analogy Jesus offers and he's always intentional about his analogy he offers an analogy of a hard path that's been sort of hardened beaten down stepped on right and so the path represents what again the heart Okay? So it's about the individual heart's hardness. And that might happen when others step on you, but it might just happen because you've decided being cynical is being easier than believing. And when you're cynical, your heart gets hard and everything just bounces off of it. Every truth claim bounces off. You would rather spend your time deconstructing somebody else's truth claim than adopting any of your own. You're never going to side with any truth claim because you don't want to have to be wrong or defend what you believe. You'd rather accuse everyone else of believing stupid stuff. And so in that cynical place, you're never going to absorb the truth no matter how it's presented to you. You're going to reject it. It's going to bounce off of you. Um, and it's not because you can't understand the message, it's because you refuse to. Because your heart is hard. Mine was too, and all I can tell you is a hard heart can be softened, if you're willing. It's actually the easiest thing in the world. If you're willing to just break down and let yourself feel again and risk hurting again. A hard heart just wants to be numb and never feel anything. If you're willing, God can soften your heart and make you um, receptive uh, to the truth again. So um, to combat this enemy means to be receptive again, to have a softness of heart and to be open. Um, The biggest difference that I can see in myself in terms of day-to-day faith um, between who I was when I was a cynic and who I am today is that whenever I open this book, let me say, whenever I used to open this book, I used to open this book expecting to find something to be upset about expecting to be confused, expecting to be offended. I used to expect to find contradictions. I wanted to expect to find something to argue about. And now I open it up expecting to find truth because I trust God. And there's still hard to read passages. There's still stuff I don't fully understand. But even in those baffling moments, I trust God to reveal some truth. And he does because we have a relationship now whereas before we... Did not. All right. So, receiving the truth is the first. I hope sort of weapon or plan of action in your uh, in your strategy against this enemy. The second one I want to talk about is seeing the truth. And This is things about to get a little little weirder up in here right now. So, seeing the truth means seeing a world beyond the scene. We all can see, and most of us can see the scene world, but you know Jesus is always talking about um, to to see and to be blind, and those who have. Eyes to see, we'll see. For Jesus, you can be blind. Your eyes can't work, you know, but but you still can see. And you can have perfectly 20-20 vision eyes, but you're blind. Because for him, um, to see meant a whole different realm. And any of us can probably see the physical realm, but can we see what's really happening um, underneath uh, or all around us in a spiritual sense? I think very few of us really can. But once you can, uh, you can't unsee that world. There's few of us that can. There's a few of them that came up after the 945 service and they were like, thank you for talking about this because I've always been one of those that does see stuff, but I never talk about it. I'm afraid. I'm ashamed to talk about it because people will think I'm, you know, if I talk about it. That's true. I sent out an email asking for your stories about this before this series began. I was surprised. I honestly didn't expect anybody to Talk to me about this, but y'all have some stories. Some of you, a few of you have seen stuff and you know there's a different reality, a different realm happening in our midst all the time. Most of us have not encountered that reality or we've chosen not to or whatever, Um, but some of us have. I find it refreshing these days when I come across somebody who's willing to talk about it. Most people who've had these experiences are not willing to talk about it, kinda have to pull it out of them and that tells you something right there. They're not being sensationalists. They're not exaggerating for the sake of attention. You know what I mean? So there's one person who I, I trust implicitly. She's one of my closest friends. And she tells me when she sees stuff, you know, I have to pull it out of her sometimes, but she'll tell me and, and she'll say, I saw stuff, you know, today in worship. And she'll say sometimes, I see a light around you in worship and there's just a the light coming from you in worship. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I like that. And then one time she said, I saw this dark thing hovering over you as you were preaching. I was like, I don't like that as much. Can... Go back to the other thing. She was like, as it hovered over you, it was like you were stumbling over your words. You weren't being clear. You just, you weren't making a lot of sense. And, and then you started talking about Jesus and getting into Jesus' story. And, and the more you said Jesus, the, the less that thing was hovering over you. And then that thing was gone and you were making your points, getting back on track again. <clears throat> and, uh, and some of y'all are thinking right now, uh, yeah, I mean, I have crazy friends too, Eric. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I get it. I get it. I used to think the same way. But this person is not, she's not like got crystals in her purse. She's not like carrying around tarot cards with her. She's like driving a Yukon like the rest of y'all. And she's, you know, raising kids and, you know, she's uh, college educated and everything. She's, but she's, her eyes have been opened. And the first thing God does after he softens your heart is to open your eyes, if you let him. He'll open your eyes to see what's really happening around you, and that's good on two fronts. It's good so you can see the enemy against you, but it's even better so that you can see the the forces that are on your side, supporting you, flanking you in whatever battle you're up against. Check this out, uh, I, had to, I had to share this. This is not on point with the message. It's not in Matthew or whatever, but this passage, I could not let this series pass without sharing this with you. It's about a war that was waging in Old Testament times. This is from 2 Kings, and, and Israel is being attacked, and the prophet Elisha is kind of the voice for God among the people of Israel at the time, and, and this is what happens in 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. When the servant of the man of God, this is Elisha's right-hand man, when the servant got up and went out early in the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord. (laughs) I love it. I don't know why. It cracks me up every time. Oh no, my Lord. What shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm gonna stop just a second and, and say, if you read the whole story, like the backdrop of the story, that's not true in terms of troops. So they were outnumbered, right? But Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked out and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He could at last see what Elisha saw. They were not alone in this. It was not just Israel's army. It was armies of angels flanking them they were in God's hands and in his care. How good would it be for you to know when you're facing a mountain that seems insurmountable, when you're facing an enemy who seems to have your number, when you're fighting a war that seems unwinnable, what a blessing would it be for you to see that you're not alone that you're surrounded by armies of angels, that God's got you, that even if somebody comes at your body, that God's got your soul, and they can't take that from you, that you aren't alone. Paul, Paul uh, I mean, the writer of Hebrews talks about this. In Hebrews uh, 12, he talks about um, running the race with endurance, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, and he's not talking about these people, In front of us, he's talking about heavenly witnesses, right? Those who went before us in faith, the angels in heaven, the cherubim and seraphim, God himself fighting for you. When you have these chariots of fire and horses alongside you, carrying you up the mountain you thought was insurmountable, winning the war you thought was unwinnable, overcoming the obstacles and the enemies you thought had your number, man, man. It's a beautiful thing. And I see that a little bit when people come to my office with their problems, and man, it's painful, 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 because a lot of people come to Gio and I or to their pastor or whatever, when when it feels like it's too late. Like, they've been secretly fighting forever. Like, uh, you know, uh, in public, they're like, we're fine, we're fine, we're a perfect couple. Look at us, we're a family, smile. And then, it's all falling apart for years. You know, it's all falling apart. But they don't reach out for help until they're just hanging on by that last branch. But if, before it all falls apart, you can get them to see that they are not each other's enemy, like in a marriage, for example, or a parent-kid relationship, or vice versa, like if, if we can ever start to see that we're not fighting each other, but we're fighting another enemy together, it's a game changer. And there's hope for even what seems to be a hopeless marriage or a hopeless situation. If you start to fight the same mutual enemy together instead of fighting each other, you can turn it around. But if you can't see that, how will you ever know? So praying like Elisha prayed to see what Elisha saw, I think has to, has to be at the top of our list in terms of fighting this battle. Pray for God to open your eyes as he opened Elisha's and the servant of Elisha. All right, uh, seeing the truth is so important. Third and finally, telling the truth. Telling the truth. All right, uh, all right. <laughs> Kind of goes back to what I just talked about because um, we are so used to lying. We are so good at it. We tell little white lies that seem like nothing. But then over time, they add up. And we don't even know like who we are anymore. We can't remember what we told to who and when. And we're just constantly covering our tracks, and it really all begins with one little, one little lie. So, <laughs> I've told this once before, but like, is my favorite story. But uh, I was putting my, my kids to bed one night, as three years ago, my son was six, and I put him to bed. We we're going through our routine and our ritual, and we were almost done, and and I, I asked him as he laid in his bed. We said our prayers and everything, and, and it was a real holy, sweet moment. I said, "You brush your teeth, right?" And he goes, "Yep." And I knew, I knew he was lying. I just saw it in his eyes. I just knew it. I said, are you sure? Yep. So I did what any father would do. I pried his jaws open (laughs) with my hands and I stuck my nose down in there. (laughs) It smelled like cookies. And I knew I had them. So I said, you little liar. seems harsh for a six-year-old, but whatever. Um, (laughs) He totally deserved it. Um, And he said, I'm not little. (laughs) He didn't care about the liar part. He knew I had him there, but he's a big liar. You know what I mean? That's what happens. We go pretty quickly from being little liars to big liars, like before we even know it. You know, one day we're just saying, in our small group, check-in time, we're saying, how are you doing? We're saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's all good, I'm good. And you're not. And you're wrapped up in sin. And that's your moment to confess it and get real and be honest and true, and you don't. And you hide it. You know, and that one little, I'm fine, one day like turns into like, Bernie Madoff the next. You know, it's like quickly, how fast it progresses. We've all seen it. That's why it bothers us when our children tell little lies like that. Not because we want to control them or like we don't want them to pull one over on us. It's not about manipulation. It's the danger of the thing. How easy it is to go from one lie to another, to another, to another, and then you're wrapped up in it exactly where the enemy wants you to be. He wants to deceive you, but even more than that, he wants to make you a deceiver and live a divided life. If you can do that, he's got you. Um, And Paul uh, approaches this a little bit in Ephesians. Before the the, uh, full armor of God, he talks about this in Ephesians 4. He talks about not giving the enemy a foothold. This is Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 29. It says, put aside falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. Then he goes on and kind of talks about other things, but these other things he talks about have to do with living a truthful life. He says, when you get angry, don't let yourself be tempted to sin in your anger. Like when you're angry and you're insecure, you want to lash out at people. You're more likely to cover your tracks. Like when you're angry, like Paul knows how sin works. He talks about not stealing anymore, it's just another form of lying. He talks about doing an honest day's work and just being real and raw and open and transparent, being a real, true, blameless, pure person again. Do you remember what that feels like? To not have any lies to cover for? you remember what it's like to be free? I think think for many of us, we're so deep in this that we don't even remember what it's like anymore and some of us are addicted to the lies and so I encourage you guys, it's important that you see this as like a recovery process and it really does take waking up in the morning and saying, I'm gonna tell the truth to everybody I see today. The whole truth. You know? Now, importantly, it does say at the end of that Ephesians passage, you don't wanna say anything unwholesome to people to tear them down but in terms of speaking you speak the truth. If you have a relationship to repair, you tell the truth. Not part of it. If you tell part of it now, the rest of it comes out later and everything you've worked to rebuild is destroyed again. You tell the whole truth. And when you tell the whole truth, you disarm the devil who wants to own you he doesn't know what to do with a truth teller somebody asks you how you're doing refuse to say i'm fine if you're in your small group how are you doing yeah i'm good pass the wine no i'm a mess right now y'all i'm not going to lie i'm a sinner Struggling with this, this, and this, and I need some help. And I, you know, I, I spoke out of turn to my wife. I spoke, you know, raised my voice, whatever. And the, you know, like I, I, I need some help. I need some prayer, some accountability here. I know it's hard to be vulnerable, but when you are, you're empowered, emboldened in the face of this enemy that wants to make you a deceiver. All right, I am. Uh, I'm a little bit over my time, so I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna end with this. Um, I cannot tell you how practical every day the ramifications are of these conversations. I know it seems ethereal, like we're talking about you know saints and sinners and pie in the sky kind of stuff. This is everyday stuff. And your greatest weapon against the enemy, aside from Jesus himself and the empty tomb, your greatest weapon today is truth. And so I, I'm asking that you soften your heart. Ask God to soften your heart, to be receptive to his truth, his simple message of forgiveness and grace, to, be, uh, to, to see his truth, uh, to not be blind anymore to the realities of the spiritual um, battles going on around you and within you. And maybe most importantly, to tell that truth, to be honest with God about yourself, to be honest with others, to be honest with yourself. And then when all that is finally in order, to speak the truth of God to the world around you to tell the world what he has done, how he set you free from the webs of deceit you used to get tangled up in. Receive the truth of God. See the truth of the spiritual world around us and tell the truth and you will disempower this enemy that stands against you. Let's pray. God, help us to see the armies of angels at our sides. No matter what we're up against, whether it's a medical condition, a cancer diagnosis, whether it's uh, anxiety, which grips a lot of us, whatever seemingly insurmountable mountain it is that stands in front of us, help us to know and to see with confidence that we're not alone. Armies of angels fight at our sides on our behalf. Indeed, that unwinnable war we thought we were facing, it's already been won. So help us to live victoriously and faithfully. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray.